Hey there, listeners. It's your host, Tao. Welcome to another episode of Bites of the Roundtable. So sorry that we've been away for so long. We've been just dealing with all the exceptionally, quote, unprecedented, unquote, events that have just decided to hit us all at once this entire year that we've been gone. Pandemic? The world burning? It's a lot, you know? Nevertheless, we're back behind the mic at our respective crafty work-from-home setups to bring you all these amazing stories from gastronomes around the world. Today on the show, we'll be talking to my friend Dr. Sharice Khan, calling in from the Big Apple, otherwise known as Glorious New York City, to talk to us today about some of her wonderful thoughts about food. Sharice, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Sharice. I am a practicing pediatrician in New York, Trinidadian, born and raised, and I've been living in New York since I was 14 years old. From a very young age, I told my parents I wanted to get into medicine, and I've always loved being around kids. I love taking care of kids. I've always had a love for science. So what prompted you to get super excited about food and come talk to us today on the podcast? Well, I'd love to view myself as a foodie. I enjoy different types of cultures of food, especially when I travel. I love trying anything and anything I can that's specific to that nation. Just for example, most people would get grossed out by things like escargot in Paris, but I was immediately on board. I was like, all right, I've got to try it to say, you know, I've tried it and wasn't the biggest fan, but I was like, hey, I tried it. Wasn't for me. I don't believe in, and I tell this to my kids, the kids I take care of, don't yuck somebody's yum. It can be amazing to them and it's just not for me. So I just don't understand it. So do you think this love for food was more of an individual thing or is a lot of your family the same way? I think it's an individual thing. My family is a lot more discerning when it comes to food. You can change their minds, I'm sure. So today you wanted to talk about the infamous lunchbox moments Sharice, can you explain in your own words what lunchbox moments are? To me, a lunchbox moment would mean, you know, when somebody who's not particularly of your culture just looks at what you're eating and their immediate reaction is that's gross or that's weird or that smells funny. What are you doing? What are you eating? It's, it's not familiar to them, so they immediately try to write it off. You feel so alone and isolated. This is what I enjoy. And it attaches this negative stigma. And you're like, all right, maybe I should not be eating it. And then, you know, you start to develop your an inward dislike towards something that you actually enjoy. And it's attached to your culture. So when I actually look up more types of blogs or readings about what a lunchbox moment is, I tend to find a lot of articles written by Asian American people. For some reason, it seems to be like all of the discourse about these lunchbox moments tend to be Asian Americans in the US. How did your lunchbox moment translate as someone from Trinidad and Tobago as a child or even in your adult life? I've had it happen to me actually in both instances as a child and as an adult. My mom and dad, they used to work in a shoe factory when they we moved over here and she would cook very early in the morning just to make sure we had food to take to school. One of my favorite dishes is curry. And when I think about describing curry to people who aren't West Indian like myself, I just say it's it's like a stew a stew like dish with blended spices and sometimes vegetables. And my mom would pack the curry and rice for us to take to school. I believe this was seventh grade. I took the food as normal to school and my classmates were predominantly uh, Canadian born. They were white, 
I think I was one of two West Indian girls in that class. I remembered for lunch, I opened my curry to eat. And I was really excited because I love curry chicken. One of the girls, she was like, what is that smell? That smells disgusting. They identified the smell and they were like, oh, it's something Sharice is eating. And it really made me feel so embarrassed. And I felt like, okay, what I'm eating is bad. They don't understand it. I I feel humiliated. I'm probably never going to bring this back to school even though I really enjoy it. From that point, I I told my mom, I'm like, hey, could you not make curry for school anymore? And I didn't give her too much like backstory. I just said, just too much of a hassle. I'm not going to bring it to school. Could you just make things like spaghetti or like more westernized dishes for me to bring to school because I, I don't want to bring curry to school anymore. And she, she didn't question it. I don't know if she may have guessed or she, she didn't bother prying me find out why I did not want to bring curry to school anymore. So to kind of gain some clarity and also correct my potential mistake, so you grew up in Canada or did you move to the U.S.? I was a little bit confused when you said that most of your classmates were Canadian born. Oh, my apologies. I did live in Canada, but it was a very, very short span of time for like a year. Born and raised in Trinidad until I was 10. We moved to Canada for a year. Then we hopped over to New York. Thank you for sharing that story with us. I found a lot of resonance when you said, Mom, could you just like not pack that anymore? And then your first suggestion was spaghetti as a very westernized food because my mom who's Cambodian Mm -hmm. whenever I had my quote American friends over which I think was proxy for my white friends over she would always Mm -hmm. cook spaghetti bolognese which or you know spaghetti bolognese as my (laughs) peers will probably punch me in the face for butchering on the air but it's fine but she calls it spaghetti bolognese. Mm-hmm. She would definitely prepare that. And that would be the Western child's dish if they came over. I had something similar happen when I was in second grade because my dad is Vietnamese. I also ate a lot of Vietnamese food growing up. So mm-hmm. one day they made me summer rolls with like fish sauce. And, you know, oh, fish sauce no. is really smelly. <laughs> But it's so tasty. Yeah, it was. it's very tasty. So I just think it's hilarious. I mean, my partner Giovanni always says whenever I cook anything with fish sauce, he says, how can something that smells like absolute garbage taste so good? I'll never understand. <laughs> but you did mention also you have an adulthood story lunchbox moment. Do you mind getting into that? Oh, absolutely. By my religion, I'm Hindu, but I'm not a very strict Hindu. So I do fast for certain holidays, typically Wali. I remembered I was still working at an engineering firm. I was about 21 or 22. I was fasting at the time. When I fast, I refrain from meat and meat products. So I'm basically on a vegan plant-based diet for that time. My mom made, what did she make? She made chickpea curry and people immediately smell curry and they're like, oh, it smells bad. It smells so strong. Why do you eat this? Why do you enjoy it? I brought it into work and I popped it in the microwave and I remembered my project manager. Her immediate response was, what is that smell? This is disgusting. And I was so humiliated. I ended up like chucking my curry away because I felt, yeah, I felt so embarrassed. I didn't want to claim it as mine because it brought me back to that same place that seventh grade me was in. I chucked it and I just went and I was like, all right, I'll just get like some vegan pizza for lunch instead. 
this was actually not the only incident I've had as an adult. For Diwali also, we um we make a lot of sweets. A lot of them are not really cakes. Most of them are milk-based or they're flour-based sweets. I brought them in for like my coworkers just as a kind gesture. I'm like, here. I'm like, you can have some. And then they saw it and one of them, I remember, took one and threw it straight in the trash. Rude. That is so rude. And it was right in front of me. It wasn't anybody relaying a message back to me. I saw it with my own two eyes. It was absolutely humiliating. The most recent event where I've introduced some sort of dessert that was unusual to most people is when I went to Vietnam in 2017, mm -hmm. the Christmas and after I visited my dad, he sent me back with a lot of Vietnamese goodies. So this was back when I was studying at Oxford. We have this area called the Middle Common Room mm -hmm. where everyone can just get coffee and hang out. And I remember putting it on there, like the shared snack file and writing a note because I'm super duper concerned if someone gets an allergic reaction. So I like wrote, this is what this snack is. These are the ingredients. Do not eat if you're allergic to this. It makes perfect sense. Yeah, and then over all the days, like people were just picking at it and eating it, but they were eating it. Like no one just decided, oh, this looks gross. They're going to throw it away. So I'm just kind of honestly very shocked in your adult life. It was so, it was such a thing that you can recall. Mm -hmm. So why do you think that people are like this? Like, why are people like this? Why can't they just eat something and be like, okay, this is good? It, I don't know. Because my guess is because it looks so unfamiliar to them and they the pungent smell puts them off. To me, I could, I could smell curry and be like, that smells divine. It smells amazing. They could smell and be like, this smells horrible. I don't like this. And I'm like, you've got to try it. You can't just like write it off just because you think the scent is off or you, you don't really like how it looks. So what drove me nuts is they didn't, they've never had it before. So they, they were just so quick to write it off. Do you think that this was a really big issue specifically for kids who are first generation or immigrants? Or do you think this carries on into like the second generation too? And from then onwards? I want to say it, it definitely is a first generation thing. I, I've heard some kids definitely in Canada and definitely in New York get made fun of for being Indian and being called, you know, curry or, you know, you have you, you because you eat curry, you smell like curry, you bring curry to lunch. They use the curry as a derogative term and tried to shame you, made you embarrassed. And it was making your own culture, using your own culture to cause discomfort within you. And it was horrible. And because you didn't want to feel judged or laughed at or called out by your peers, you would just, you know, try to completely stare away from your culture and become more westernized or more Americanized and just bring things to school like spaghetti and meat sauce like I did for quite a long time. The thing that I would always eat were tomato sandwiches. I think I maybe watched and read a little bit too much Harriet the Spy, but <laughs> I was really down with the tomato sandwiches. That was my, uh, to put it frankly, it was my white people food, tomato oh, sandwiches. Yes. For me, it was definitely just spaghetti and meat <laughs> So why do you think our brains chose those foods? It's, it's almost like having like a lunchbox disguise as a reaction, you know? I think because typically when I see spaghetti, I'm like, everybody knows what this is. They're not offended by the smell or the look. So they know what it is. They understand what it is. There's no cultural appreciation or acceptance that needs to happen here. So... It's simple and it's easy. It really does drive me nuts because looking back at it, I wish I, I stuck to my guns and kept bringing curry to school anyway. It just makes me think about how elaborate 
our lunches were in the grand scheme of things because sometimes I'll see these recipe blogs with parents and they always go for like very aesthetically cute and easy to make Mm-hmm. And they just don't look as, I don't know, appetizing to me. Maybe it's because I grew up with like my mom cooking a lot of different random things and stuffing them into my lunchbox. Mm-hmm. I even re- now I'm just having a, like a memory flashback of when I was at that point in middle school where I was like super hungry all the time. And I was mm-hmm. like, let me just take one bite of my lunch like covertly <laughs> in the back of this class. Oh no, I could not do that effectively because being covert when you've got something quote other or just seasoned, yeah, <laughs> can't really hide that. Absolutely, yeah, you cannot mask the smell of herbs and spices anywhere. It's easily identifiable. So let me pick your brain a little bit more. So now that we're thinking about how we have our conceptions of what uh, is acceptable types of lunchbox food when we were kids, we have, we're growing up in a world now where everyone is very globalized. Kids know what sushi is and they know what tacos are. They know all these different types of famous cuisines from all over the world, from all these different cultures. Do you think that the lunchbox moment and that kind of terrible feeling, do you think it's going to slow down because of all the exposure some kids are getting? I want to say yes, but I actually have had moments where I've made things that my nephew, he's four years old, he'd look at it and be like, this looks gross. And I, you know, I immediately correct him. I'm like, never yuck somebody's yum. This is, this may look funny and weird to you, but it's special and it's amazing to somebody else. So don't make, don't belittle them. Don't make them feel judged. Just don't keep your comments to yourself. Maybe he's four years old and I'm already seeing this. I don't know if his peers would be the same way. But he's, you know, he's four. He's, it's easy to leave an impression on him. I do my best to expose him to everything. I expose him to sushi, to curries, ramen. I want him to understand, like, there's a world of food. Don't just, you know, box yourself off to, like, nuggets and fries, please. And just, you know, spaghetti. There's too many options out there. It's really funny that you also said nuggets and fries. Because I think of that as one of, like, the notorious picky eater foods. Oh, gosh. I can't. I I do have a very close friend of mine. Whenever we go to a restaurant, we went to seafood-based restaurant, and I remembered I ordered... I ordered salmon and she ordered chicken tenders and fries. I was so over it. At a seafood restaurant? At a seafood restaurant. I guess perhaps the uh, pressure of seafood was stressing her out. So people just kind of go what they're comfortable with. Absolutely. I'm trying to be really nice about picky eaters. But as someone who has never been a picky eater in my entire life, it's just something hard for me to grapple with. I think it's like the immigrant parents thing where they kind of sit you down and they say things like, oh, well, we never had that much to eat. You should be grateful. There are people starving all over the world. You should be grateful. And I'm sitting there like, oh, yeah, I should. I just eat whatever is in front of me. Likewise, my parents, my my mom grew up poor and my dad grew up better off than she was. My mom was like, yeah, they would have certain portions of food to eat. And my dad was like, they had an abundance of food. My dad's family actually... They work in the seafood business, so I actually had seafood pretty often, so I was exposed to it, and I loved it. So if you could pack a exploratory lunchbox, let's say that you're just given a room of 
24 year olds, right? Mm -hmm. And you could pack a hypothetical lunchbox of dishes for them to try that they probably won't get at home. What would you put in that hypothetical lunchbox? Hmm. Is there a limit to the dishes or? Let's say one main dish, a mm -hmm. snack, a dessert, and maybe a beverage. Okay. Okay. So beverage, I would pack coconut water. For the main dish, I would pack pilau, which is a uh, rice dish with pigeon peas and uh, bits of chicken and carrots and celery cooked up in one. For a side dish, I would probably pick doubles. It's like a chickpea sandwich on like a fried bread. Ooh. For dessert, what would I pick for dessert? I would probably pick homemade cherry ice cream. Oh, wow. Homemade. Yeah. Wow, you're just spoiling these hypothetical <laughs> Yeah, in Trinidad, there's such an abundance of fresh fruit. They make ice cream out of it. So you'll often find little vendors in cities selling these uh, homemade ice cream cones. It's fantastic. Wow, that sounds so delicious. I guess I just have one more question for you to talk about this lunchbox moment. Do you think it's also a class thing? Do you think besides the fact that it's mostly it mostly affects children whose parents are not uh, not white. It affects children of color and also children that are the children of immigrants. Do you think it also has to do with the class thing? Do you think you can be a very well-off person of color and still have a lunchbox moment? Absolutely. I absolutely think you can. And this is a perfect example. My best friend, actually, her, her father, he's pretty well-off. She wore Tiffany's jewelry and like really expensive clothing. She was a very humble, humble, sweet person, which attracted me to her. And we've been close for 13 or 14 years. And she told me like one day she's like Sharice I brought curry to work and I microwaved it and somebody said I made the entire office stink. She worked in a lawyer's office that was pretty much lawyers and she was assisting one of them at the time so she was pretty embarrassed because these people came from you know really well-off backgrounds and they were a little more worldly and they were also what some of them were West Indian and they typically ate things like salads and soup every day, according to her. See, this is what I wanted to poke at. And listeners, you're probably thinking, Tao, why did you separate race, ethnicity, nationality from class? Because you can't really do that. Like We can acknowledge that they're all interwoven, but I just wanted to make this interesting point where it's like, because it costs money to eat out, correct? Absolutely. And we have this kind of lunchtime etiquette of what's acceptable in the office. And I think that when people choose to bring lunch from home, it's because they either enjoy it, of course, but also it might be a class divide thing. So I wanted to highlight that. There it is, listeners, the lunchbox moment. Would you like to have any ending words, Cherise? Don't be embarrassed of your culture. Don't let outside people dictate how you should feel or shame you about your culture and just push it to the side. Because I certainly regret having these kids judge me and making little remarks about saying I smell like curry. I certainly resent that. And I wish I kept bringing curry to school and enjoyed my food instead of feeling ashamed and having to just substitute it with things like spaghetti and sandwiches. And not to knock spaghetti and sandwiches, but... But, you know, <laughs> you gotta love that home cooking. Absolutely. I do love me some good curry. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Khan. Thank you for being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. This was a good time. Food is always a good time. It certainly is. 
Hey there, listeners. It's your host, Cal. Thank you so much for tuning in to the fourth episode of Bites of the Roundtable. It really means a lot to us. We hope you enjoyed these sound bites from a lovely gastronome from across the world. Much love to Dr. Sharice Khan for sharing her thoughts and stories about her lunchbox moments. Listeners, the next time you're presented with something that you haven't eaten before, don't yuck somebody's yum. <laughs>